everybody, and welcome to That's Life, the show where we are the only ones who know in advance what's in the mystery basket for tonight's stunt show cook-off. Good afternoon, folks, and thanks for listening. Yes, I am in the know. And I am Miriam L. Wallach, blogger, writer, and general manager here at the Nachum Siegel Network. You can find me here every Thursday at 2 p.m. as I hope to bring you a little entertainment, a little news, and a little relief that the life you are leading is not nearly as wacky as mine. Coming to you from the home of the Nachum Siegel Network, on the beautiful Lower East Side, I am joined by my handy-dandy partner. What's up, Avram? How's it going? Thank God. How's it going with you? Things are going all right. Yeah? How's Baltimore? It's doing well. We had a little bit of a taste of uh, New York this week. My dad came down to uh, fight a traffic ticket and brought me a couple loaves of New York bread. Nice. Once again, I'm reminding everyone who lives in New York that the bread here is better than theirs. So enjoy it and appreciate it. Yeah, uh, you know what? That's a public service announcement. We just don't make enough. But can I ask you about the whole ticket thing? Yeah, it was a speeding thing. Apparently, there's this hill that a lot of people oh. get. It's like coming off the highway, and it's a really downhill, so a lot of people get tagged. And uh, so he had to go down and fight it. And um, How'd that work out? Well, I guess I would call it a tie. He got part of what he wanted, and Maryland got part of what they wanted. <laughs> they and, wanted uh, his money. So Did they get his money? He just didn't want points, and he I didn't get that. points. It all okay. worked out. So and we got a chance to see him. He got a chance to see the grandkids oh, and whatever. Silver lining playbook. So, yeah. The, uh, the, you've heard my famous story about when, uh, Stephen Wallach Esquire represented Miriam Wallach in a more than one ticket situation, but specifically a speeding ticket in which Stephen very, very plainly told me that I should pack a bag and bring it that night because if my spending the night in lockup meant that I wasn't getting points, well then that was the price I was going to pay. Fair enough. Yes. So during, uh, so after he, uh, negotiated, so to speak, or plead the, uh, case with the, um, attorney for the city of Lindbrook, town of Lindbrook, and I had to go before the judge. The judge looks at me and goes, so, I heard you brought your toothbrush. I'm like, all right, you know what? Can I just be un- over and done with? So, uh, yeah, speeding tickets, they're a hoot. Anyway, if you're a new listener to the show, thank you for taking a break from your day to tune in. And if you're a returning listener, thanks, as always, for making us part of your day. If Miriam L. Wallach once a week is just not enough for you, do what Shirley Weinstein does. Friend me on Facebook. Send me an invite on LinkedIn. You can also shoot me an email, miriam at nachamsegel.com. I will not respond to you during the show, but I will, please God, respond to you afterwards. Please also follow us on Twitter, NachumSiegel.net, all one word. And also, go go to the Google Play Store. Pull down that Android app. Make sure to download it to your phone. And if you have not already downloaded our app on iTunes, if you have an iPhone, you should do that as well. I'd like to say hello to the three people in Cambodia. Yep, three people in Cambodia who are listening to us on their iTunes app. Um, not sure what you're doing there, but hey, shout out to you guys. Also, make sure to check out my piece on OULife.org slash life. OU.org slash life. My thanks to the 20 people who posted my piece from last week on being on board with your kids. Let's go to our favorite segment. What does the fortune cookie say? Rummy, I got to tell you, I was having a tough day two days ago, and I, um, without... Clearing it with anybody opened a fortune cookie. I didn't I didn't ask. I didn't tell. I didn't post it. I just did it. It was, like, completely impulsive. Here we go. Okay. Clean break. It's at the worst of times that you need to summon your optimism. Well, if Confucius doesn't know me, I don't know who does, because this is an appropriate, appropriate fortune. Let's take care of some business here. Today is national holiday. It is American Eagle Day. Nice. American Eagle, by the way, not the store, the actual eagle. Um, it is Anne and Samantha Day. Now, I will tell you what this is. Anne and Samantha Day 
is a day to support having Anne Frank and Samantha Smith appear on American postage stamps. It is celebrated twice a year. And the people who have organized this date um, request that you send a letter expressing your wish to see, see, to see Anne and Samantha appear on U.S. stamps to your local representative. Did I ever tell you that my mom looks eerily like um, Anne Frank? You know, those books, The Diary of Anne Frank, they have that picture of her, you know, smiling. My mom, when she was little, looks so much like that. It's ridiculous. Ew. Can you show me a picture? I, I'll i try to find it. Come on. I guarantee you can find one on Facebook or somewhere <laughs> on the Internet by the time the show is over. It is also Dump the Pump Day. Yep, Dump the Pump Day. In these tough economic times with high gas prices, everyone is looking for a way to save money. National Dump the Pump Day encourages people to ride public transportation instead of driving and save money, which, by the way, I did today. There was no car used in the transportation of Miriam Wallach to and from work, with the exception of actually getting to the train station initially. And I took the bus. There you go. It's also recess at work day. You know what that means at 3 o'clock, Avram? We get to run outside and we're play? Go- we're going to play in the park. All right. Um, and it's also World Refugee Day, though um, I-, I don't know that our playing in the park really supports that, but we'll do one holiday at a time. Also, don't miss the following. Avram, you're going to like this. Next week is Lightning Safety Awareness Week. My mother-in-law is going to be a fan of that. Because she's afraid of lightning? She's worried that during storms people will get struck really? by lightning. Yes. Does she know anybody who ever got struck by lightning? I think she's heard a story or two. Well, everyone's heard stories or two of people. This is just a concern. Okay. All right. So she is appreciating in advance the fact that I'm making everyone aware. Next week is also Carper- Carpenter Ant Awareness Week. Um, in case you were not aware of Carpenter Ants, you have the opportunity to do so next week. And then National Mosquito Control Awareness Week is also next week. And I'm totally in favor of that. Let's zap him out of uh, the environment. Crazy follows me everywhere. This week was no exception. Avram, you know, there's a major diet craze going on now about raspberry ketones. Do you know what they are? No. They're like these uh, dietary supplements. They're like little capsules. It was the same kind of insanity, like the acai berry, you know, those caplets and whatever that everybody was taking for, for weight loss. I tried an acai drink one time. It was terrible. Well, I tried those acai berry capsules, and I'm convinced I gained weight doing that. So the new thing is raspberry ketones, and I actually know two people who have had success with raspberry ketone pills and have lost weight. I'm like, all right, what do I got to lose? Anyway, hopefully weight. Anyway, so I'm at the pharmacy picking up other stuff, and they have a brand of raspberry ketones with a good hashkacha on it. So I said to the woman at the store, I said, what's the deal with these raspberry ketones? And she said, oh, Dr. Oz talked about it. He swears by them. I'm like, I've never watched any Dr. Oz, but I've heard of him, obviously. So I said, well, what's, you know, what, what's in them? And so she goes, well, raspberry ketones are the main ingredient in raspberries. So I said to her, I don't understand. Raspberries are not the main ingredient in raspberries? Yeah. So she just looked at me, and then we both laughed and whatever. But I was laughing harder, frankly, because I thought it was funny. And either she didn't get it or didn't think I was nearly as funny as she was, as uh, I thought I was. Anyway, well, your mic isn't on, so let's try that again. I said, turns out her name was Miriam. By the way, I think we really need to go play in the park. Somebody needs to get some air. Um, By the way, the new segment, hashtag this, continues this week. I got no feedback about it, which uh, to me is always a good sign because people only give me feedback when they're angry. So I am continuing in my new segment of hashtag this. This week's new hashtag is stunt show this. I I have decided that that is going to be a phrase that we keep around anytime somebody has a great idea or somebody sees something crazy or whatever, 
we're going to say it, stunt show this. There's been discussion about some kind of a bowling competition or whatever. And, of course, guess who says he's a great bowler? Ellie Hagler. You gotcha! You win the prize. Ellie Hagler says he's a great um, he is a great bowler. Who who really knows? I mean, who who really knows? But anyway, stunt show this is obviously in honor of the stunt show tonight taking place at the Center for Kosher Culinary Arts. Daniel Gordon hosts. Um, it's the first cook-off, which I have a feeling will be an annual event. It is an all-men's competition, though I will tell you there is definite, definite dissension in the ranks because the women want to be represented and um, even if we do an annual men's, we also may do an annual women's. There, Naomi Nachman, by the way, said that she would not compete if I asked her to. She would judge. She would not compete. So it's basically going to be me, Randy, Rivka Abbey, <laughs> who I don't think is old enough to play with fire, and uh, Leo Razamic. I mean, uh, and that's about it, right? Am I missing anybody? The How do you think? We can do the wives of. Well, you know, it'll be next year, so who knows what next season will be like. You that's, know? Well, I do. Oh, okay. oh that's a good point. <laughs> anyway, we have to get to our first interview. So you are listening to That's Life here of the Nahum Siegel Network on the beautiful Lower East Side, and I'm ready and excited to introduce my first guest. While I have been a guest on his show a number of times, Matis Weingast has yet to be a guest, uh, sorry, a guest here on That's Life, but as a competitor in the uh, what is a very highly publicized and um, anticipated stunt show this evening. I wanted to make sure to have on the dark horse himself, who is also the host of JM Sunday. Hello, Matis. Hey, Miriam. How are you? I've never been referred to as a dark horse. Well, I've been called a lot worse, but we can talk about that <laughs> off the air. Listen to me. Everyone, everyone's got a plan. Everyone's got a plan. And right now, Daniel Gordon thinks that he has the... Uh, advantage over everyone. Of course, Ellie Hagler thinks that he's done everything right every day of his life. And Zomic, who knows what's going on with Zomic? You just don't <laughs> ask questions. So you are the dark horse. You have told everyone that you don't know how to cook. And, right. um, but I, I have a feeling you have a plan. I do have a plan. And the plan is one of two things. A, I'm not going to show up. All right. Or, or B, I'm going to bribe the judges. And so far, I have dirt. On, on most of the judges. <laughs> so, so we're gonna see, uh, you know, I'll give you a little, a uh, little hint. Uh, I did speak to Jamie Geller concerning one of the, uh, judges. Nice. Um, Naomi Nachman, I have the tapes, uh, the recordings of her without that accent that she puts on. I was about to say, you know that the accent is fake, don't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have those, and, you have those and the Zaprooter files. Go on. <laughs> right. And if, and if Nachman ever wants to take another vacation in the morning, and expects me to get subs. <laughs> hey, yep. but tr- truthfully, though, I have, first of all, I am very much looking forward to this. It is going to be a lot of fun. Right. It is very exciting. I think it's a great idea. And hats off to Daniel for doing this in his stunt show. And hats off to you for coordinating this. Um, my plan will be to look at the ingredients, to uh, try to make something that I would like to eat or try that I've never had before. Okay. And just just do my best with it. Try not to burn stuff and, uh, you know, <laughs> spice things up appropriately. I don't think I, I'll tell you right now, I don't think I'm going to win, but uh, at least maybe there could be a, a dish or two or part of the dish that will be tasty that everyone will enjoy. You know what I think people constantly make a mistake with is not using salt or not using enough salt. And specifically because um, we have all these health concerns and we a, n- a number of us have grown up, 
learning that salt is bad, salt is bad, salt is bad. And I, as a person who not only cooks happily with salt, but not, but has a salt collection at home, which we've talked about, um, you know, there's, there's a, it's just a number one mistake that people make because salt is not, um, salt is not a spice. It's, a, it's an ingredient or a flavor enhancer. It really brings out the best in everything that you're cooking. So people who instinctively leave out salt are automatically going to bring their dish down a number of points. Interesting. Let, let me just write that down in my notes here. <laughs> Tips, use salt. Now, you're correct, of course. There are health concerns, though. People uh, sometimes over-salt or under-salt. Right. The one good thing about salt, though, is if you under-salt, you can add to certain dishes afterwards. Right. Um, but it, you're right, in the, in, the prepping, in the preparation process, if you don't put in the right amount of salt, if needed, it's not going to come out the same. There's nothing you can do to fix it afterwards. I do, however, like to use a lot of different spices. For instance, and I hope I'm not giving away anything to my competitors, but um, when I cook a pepper steak, I like adding cinnamon. For really? Instance. Uh, I love cinnamon. You maybe know what? that's a normal thing. I don't know. Cinnamon and paprika are two things that I like to put together. There's like, and, uh, you know, that's a... Um, kind of a Moroccan, Middle Eastern kind of thing to it that sometimes I add to couscous. Like if I'm making couscous into a pilaf, it'll be toasted almonds and it'll be, let's say, some fresh parsley or some kind of a green. And then I add in the salt, the paprika, cinnamon, and just take it from there because that is a really good flavor combination. Excellent. Uh, what's, what's a pilaf? Um, anyway... <laughs> It's just a fancy word for rice. No. Yeah, um, I am not. I'm afraid of something because I am not a big fish eater, and I have never made fish. Really? Uh, and I'm afraid, I'm guessing that there's probably going to be some type of fish uh, in the basket, uh, and I have to figure out what to do with that. And I, I think I know. I think I know what I want to do. Ideally, I would like to do uh, some type of um, fish wrap. Um, so we'll, we'll see how that works out. We'll see what the ingredients are like. Also, I don't know if you've announced this or, or said this, but, you know, the competition time is very short. Right. I think we have whatever it is, 30 minutes, 40 minutes to prepare all this. Yeah, I don't remember actually the, uh, I don't remember, I don't remember it all in front of me. But you know what, by the way, the thing about, um, I don't mean to interrupt you, you just said something about making fish is, um, you know, it, it cooks very quickly is one thing that you have to keep in mind. That's right. 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 Uh, now, Daniel, by the way, was on my show on Sunday morning. Right. I heard that. That was a hoot. <laughs> yeah. That was a hoot. Because when you told him that Chef Wiseman, who's the dean of the CKCA, <laughs> and not only going to be on hand there but also um, for, for the event, but also was taking a major role in the event, was your first cousin, I thought he was going to pass out on the air. <laughs> He he was fine. First of all, Daniel said to me ahead of time when I asked him to be on the show, he said, okay, yeah, that's fine. I'd love to be on it. Then he paused and said, if you're trying to get any tips from me, forget <laughs> it. I'm the, I'm the most competitive person really that is. you will ever meet. It's not normal. Okay, that's fine. But then when I mentioned about uh, Avram being my first cousin, his normal demeanor changed. And if you listen very carefully, you can tell that he hesitated for a minute. He lost his train of thought. Uh -huh. He had to recoup. <laughs> and I think that affected him. And he, he made some comments afterwards. I'd have to listen to the show again about, like, oh, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> he is, um, yeah, he is crazy competitive. I'm also curious because I know how quiet I get in the kitchen when I'm 
working on a time constraint, specifically Arab Shabbos, when all of a sudden it's, you know, two hours before Shabbos and I haven't made a chicken, how quiet I get while I'm prepping. And I wonder, with two loud mouths, God bless them, like Gordon and Hagler, what's going to happen in the kitchen as they're prepping? Very interesting. I don't know what they're going to do. I know that I will become hyper-focused because that's right. the only way I can get through certain things. Do you think you're going to have trouble? I may not talk a lot at all. Do you think? Sorry to interrupt. Did you? Do you think that you're going to have trouble finishing? It is. It is a short time. Um, honestly, I think so. It depends on the ingredients because if I do not know what to do with one of the ingredients mm-hmm. or more, uh, I'm just going to be uh, waiting to the end with that, and I may just have to quickly whip up something. I, I don't know. By the it's, way, it's I don't scary. know. That, I don't know that there, it is. It is the unknown is always scary. But by the way, I don't know that there are going to be wraps in the pantry because I didn't specifically tell Jesse to make sure that that pantry was stocked with wraps. I know that Zomic asked me for egg roll wrappers, um, which uh, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out which direction he's going in, God bless him. Um, and I let everybody know in an email that egg roll wrappers were being um, acquired for the for the pantry, but I don't know that there are wraps. There, there may not be, but I I, I believe that uh, there's going to be bread there, some yes. different types of bread. Yes. So I'll make do with what's there. I'm not uh, too picky. All right. Well, dark horse, I got to tell you, my money is on you because for some reason or another, <laughs> I have a feeling you're going to be like you know uh, coming up from behind. Nobody's going to see you coming, and boom, you're going to hit the you're going to hit the ground running. I will be. Thank you. I will be happy though if I get a good reaction, like I said, to something that I uh, that I make. Okay. I'll be very happy with that. Well, and uh, as long as nobody gets food poisoning and everybody <laughs> and Nassim can do the show on Friday morning, yeah. hey, then we win. Right. Then it's a win-win in all categories. Matzah, <laughs> thank you very much for joining me. The Sun Show is tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. You can watch it on our stream, NachumSiegel.com. Check it out. We are you streaming the entire show. And you can also obviously listen to the audio also by going to our site. Matzah, thanks so yeah. much. Yeah, I'm pretty, you're welcome. I'm practicing right now, by the way, because it's just in a couple of hours. I, so what are you doing? You're sous vide something? <laughs> no, I'm <laughs> practicing walking from the oven to the uh, to, to the prep table. Oven to prep table. That's it. By the way, right. I, I want you. Mary, I know. I'll see you later. I was about to say we have to get. All, we have to. We have to finish this interview. But I just want to tell you that I so feel a little bit left out because this is completely on my alley that I'm this close to asking my kids to put together six different items, put them in a basket, and give me a half an hour to make something. You know, that's a great idea. All kidding aside, that is a great idea for a home project to do as a family in general. Or you it could, just, just feeds into my OCD. Who knows? Or it just feeds into my OCD. It depends on the way you look at it. Anyway, Matis, uh, JM Sundays, obviously Sunday morning 7 to 9. Matis tonight is a competitor again on the stunt show. Looking forward. Same here. Take care. Take Thank care, Matis. You're listening to That's Life here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm Miriam L. Wallach, ready to be joined by my second guest. Dr. Michael Solomon from the ADC Psychological Services in Hewlett, New York, joins us on the air. He is a returning guest here at That's Life. He is the author of hundreds of articles, numerous books, including how, basically everything wrong with the shit-off system right now. My, uh, Dr. Solomon, am I, am I, am I synopsizing it too, too uh, simplistically? Um, maybe. <laughs> well, that's why you do what you do and I do what I do. Dr. Solomon, thanks for joining me. Pleasure. Listen, I'm not actually going to talk to you about the Shadok crisis because you and I have spoken about that, even though that's something we should discuss, uh, you know, and can be discussed numerous times. But I'm specifically talking to you today because everyone's getting ready for summer camp. 
And by, the, by everybody, I mean not just the kids, but the parents as well. A lot of parents have separation anxieties of sending their children to sleepaway camp for the first time or putting their kids on the camp bus for the first time. And then, of course, on the other end of the spectrum, sorry, I didn't mean spectrum that way, but on the other end of the spectrum it are the kids who also are having their anxieties. So how do we as parents facilitate our children's success at camp while they are there and we are here? Great question. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was the end of the segment. No, I'm just <laughs> Okay. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I, in doing some research on this, because I've spoken about it a couple places in the last few weeks, I found that uh, the literature suggests very strongly that something like 80% of all kids who go to sleepaway camp have at least one significant day of homesickness. At least, yeah. At least, which is pretty significant. Right. Um, and, you know, how you deal with uh, homesickness is very simple. You tell the child it's absolutely normal and it's okay, and if we need to be in touch, we'll be in touch, and, and you'll get through it. And it's really hard for a parent to say that, but that's all a child really needs. Uh, and, and, a, and a sympathetic um, counselor uh, who understands it and has been through it themselves and uh, can help a child just get through the day and, and be distracted enough to feel comfortable in, the, in their new environment. It's also safe to say, by the way, that that day of homesickness is not necessarily just going to come at the beginning when they get off the bus. When they get off the bus, they're excited. Things are new. It's finally camp. They know they're going to have a great time. It could come at just an odd day at an off moment. It could come at any point. It right. could come in the last two weeks of camp, and it's not mm. uncommon for it to happen on the last day of camp. Really? Why yeah. is that? Um, not really sure. I'm, I've spoken to some kids who felt it, and I think it's more an issue of just making changes again, and that they're feeling like they're leaving another environment, going back home to another environment, just too much going on for them. Um, but they call it homesickness. Interesting. Interesting. Um, does it help for a for a kid who may be experiencing homesickness to find a sibling or a family member, whether it's a cousin on camp on campus in camp, and spend some time with them, or that makes it worse? That. That can make it better as long as the other child is strong, strong, yeah, and is not suffering the same thing. So there's that older sibling that comes into play that, you know, puts the arm around the shoulder that helps the younger sibling get through the day, so to speak. Right. What about sending your kids with, with photographs? Good good idea, bad idea? Um, or I should say, I think I just dated myself because I'm sure these kids have it on their phones. I but, was going to say, yeah. are we talking about... <laughs> Cell phones, or are we talking about actual photographs? Well, we're going to talk about cell phones in a second, but let's talk about, you know, good old-fashioned print copies of something. Um, I think most kids would see that as being a little um, over the top. Okay. Um, that it's a bad move for you to send your kid because it's going to make them uncomfortable and not everybody's going to have pictures of their family sitting around. Exactly. Interesting. Interesting, because that instinctively is something I've always sent my kids with because it's more like my girls like to show off the family. And I, I mean that in terms of, thank God, we are blessed with six kids and it's a full picture. So they have a good time showing the younger siblings who, thank God, are cute and feisty and whatever else to, sh to, their, to their bunk mates. Well, maybe for girls it's different, but I mm. think boys might... Uh... Right, boys might stick out. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's a... <laughs> That's a very good point. Now, let's talk for a second about the cell phone. Numerous camps have no cell phone policies. Numerous camps have policies. Uh, we only give it back to your kid on trip day, or they can call home on Fridays. Like, there are lots of different ways to splice it. Let's talk through that. 
Okay, so let's be specific. Okay. What's the issue? Meaning, um, is the issue that is the is the um, is the camp worried that they're going to that the kids are going to use the cell phones for inappropriate things, mm. um, or are they worried that uh, kids are going to sneak the phones and call their parents when they shouldn't be calling their parents? So it's, we're dealing on two different levels. Right. Uh, if the kids are using phones for inappropriate things, then they shouldn't have the phones accessible, and parents should actually learn how to lock uh, the phones so that the kids don't have access to those things. Oh, um, good point. You know, they, they, home computers generally have... Um, uh, parental controls. Right. I was going to say net nanny, but that <laughs> might be an advertisement. Right, yeah, parental um, controls. Parental of course, controls, I'm the person who puts parental controls on their kid's Mac and then forgets the password, but that's right. another story. <laughs> Right. Um, but they don't think about putting it on, on their, their cell phones, which is kind of crazy. Well, of course, then there's the parent who says, what? I'm going to send, and I've heard this from numerous people, I'm going to send two cell phones. Why? Um, I don't know. Come on, you can figure it out, because when one cell phone is taken away and confiscated, they still have a backup. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, come on, I can't, I'm really the first person to tell you that. Do you know no. how many parents I've heard that from? And my response is the same thing. You're the reason there's a no cell phone policy. And what are you teaching your kid? You're teaching your kid that there's a way to circumvent the rules, and the rules don't apply to you. But as long as you can sleep at night, that's fine with me. Well, that's Geneva. Geneva stas. It's Geneva. It's plain plush at Geneva. Do I sound like I just uh, learned in the base medrash this morning? You did. And by the way, I appreciate that because I did not. Okay. So (laughs) share it with me. That's good. Let the vibes continue through the the airwaves. No, I think that that's totally underhanded. If parents are doing that, then then that's bordering on on basic parental neglect, maybe worse. I mean, it's not abuse, but it's teaching kids really bad things. Right. You are not facilitating. And by the way, these are probably, you know, very well-intentioned parents who just, of course, quote-unquote, want their kids to be able to be in touch with them at all times. But am I wrong to say that the kid will be much better off if they are not able to be in touch with their parents at all times? I mean, that's the way I handle things. I think kids are much better off when they're given a sense of independence and and they learn to, to use that independence properly. And if they constantly have this this leash to their parents, then they're never, never going to be able to become independent. And, you know, it's no different than these helicopter parents who do homework for their kids. The kids never learn to do homework. Okay. Suddenly they're off at college and they're calling their parents, help, I can't do the homework. There are ki- parents who sit there and do their homework for their kids, not with their kids? That's exactly what I'm saying, yeah. And that happens, uh, unfortunately. I, I have nothing. I mean, I'm speechless on my own show, by the way. That's not good for business. But okay, sorry. That's quite all right, yeah. I, I mean, I don't understand. I honestly don't understand. How are you... It's. It, it, I don't have to tell. I don't have to remind you of the book "Blessings of a Skinned Knee." But for people who aren't familiar with it, there are blessings of a skinned knee. In that, what your kid learns to walk again and deal with the skinned knee. There is. There is. Um, there is success in failure. There is success in trials and tribulations. So, what are these parents thinking? They're not. I mean, they're thinking they're doing something good for their children, but they're really they're, they're incapacitating them in some way. What would you say to a parent who you found out, you were sitting at a Shabbos table, and this parent said, in, in classic conversation, um, yeah, I send my kid with two phones, one to get confiscated and one to keep in his bag? Um, I, I, I would first probably cluck my tongue and, and, <laughs> and, and get all red before I said anything, because I didn't want to, I wouldn't want to disturb the entire meal. But, you know, people look at me sometimes and say, uh-oh. And then, I, then I would say, well, I think you're doing something very bad for your child. Oh. 
Yeah, that may that may stop the meal. Dr. Michael Salomon is the founder and director of the Adult Development Center, a comprehensive psychological consulting practice in Hewlett, New York. He joins us here on That's Life today discussing facilitating the success of our kids off in summer camp as we stay home and go to work and live our lives but still want to make sure that they are doing the right thing and that they are having the best summer possible. Is there a different way to handle the kid who is going to summer sleepaway camp for the first time as opposed to the kid who is going to day camp for the first time? Is there? Yes. Um, kids who have gone a, f- a few times tend to want to um, you know, make that transition more on their own, more independently. Kids going for the first time are very afraid generally, even though they may not show it, but as a general rule, they're afraid of, of this What's going to happen? You know, mm. The big question is, where am I going to be? Who am I going to be with? What's going to happen? Sometimes parents here make a mistake of trying to convince the camp that the children must be with X, Y, and Z other child, um, and they make the transition a little bit more difficult by doing that, rather than saying to the child, you're going to have a great time, or look at this person who went last year and listen to what they said about the camp, and we checked out the camp, and the camp is a great camp, and we've spoken to your counselor, and the counselor's a good counselor, and you know, build a child's sense of self and ego and, and ability to handle life rather than focusing on what may not go well. Hmm. Uh, although, again, you know, it's, it's a fine balance between um, getting the child strong and independent and actually taking care of the child's safety. There are real issues here in terms of child safety in, in camp that have to be addressed, right. and children have to be taught about those things. Hmm. That's, uh, one of the, that's one of those frank conversations you need to have with your kid before they get on the bus. Exactly. Exactly. It's a different world than from when I grew up, Dr. Solomon. Um, it is, although even when I grew up, we knew some of these things were going on, just was never discussed. I, I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's pretty mind-boggling. I'm going to put my kids on the bus. I'm going to wa- wave to them as they leave. I am going to be 100% confident that they will have a phenomenal time because I'm, I was a camper and they're amazing campers. But, yeah, I... You know, I have to be an aware parent that in 2013, life is very different, even at summer camp. Right. What about sending camp packages? Good thing, bad thing. I think it's fine. Really? As long as it's not, again, not over the top. Right. Um, you know. How many is too many? I'm not saying that to be funny, but for those people who have listened, who listened to That's Life last summer, they know that, pathetically enough, my husband and I did have a competition as to who could send better packages. And, of course, my husband always won. Why? Because his packages were creative and simple, and mine were complex and bizarre. But he would make them, he would literally take pieces of colored paper, print them out with their names on it, and make them, quote-unquote, personalized stationery, and they were over the moon. Okay. So there you go. So it yeah. doesn't have to be anything big and creative, wonderfully I mean, over-the-top creative. It just right. has to be simple, straightforward stuff. What are they looking for? They're looking for a connection with mommy and daddy. They don't need a week's worth of rugula, uh, and, and you know why I chose that. Yes, I might, <laughs> yes. <laughs> For those people who were not paying attention, I wondered on Friday on Facebook as to whether or not rugula was an actual food group. But anyway, yeah. Um, they, they don't need uh, a full Shabbos worth of deli right. that's sent by FedEx, yeah. um, a, along with three cases of the most recent uh, iteration of Snapple. Oh, um, they don't need um, the, 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 the biggest, most expensive uh, video game that just came out. No, oh, brother. All they need is, you know, something, a little note saying, miss you, we'll see you on visiting day, and, and by the way, there's some raisins in here that, or, or there's some cookies I baked, or something along those lines. 
That's nice. Just something simple to show a connection, to make sure the kid knows that you are thinking of them at home while they're away. Exactly. So less can be more in this case as well. Exactly. You know, I heard a story last year, by the way, that a summer camp up in the Catskills um, received a weekly package from a supermarket, a, a Glock kosher supermarket, every single week that this kid, I mean, a full box of food for the entire Shabbos, as if this child could not, and this was not an allergy thing. Let's get that clear. This was not an allergy thing. This was a... Uh, a an entitled child thing, and this parent sent a full Shabbos spread every Arab Shabbos to make. I, that's exactly what I'm talking about. It's right. being totally wrong. Right. Do th- do camps have camps themselves also lost perspective? And what I mean by that is, you have camps upstate who are offering everything from sushi bars to hair salons to. Um, you know, a, a spin, um, a spin studio so that people could do spin classes. Uh, Nine thousand things where I don't remember doing anything besides lanyards and macrame. And now this is what kids are being offered. Is it kids? Is it camps going too far, or camps competing with each other because every kid and every camper is needed? I, I think that's exactly what's going on. The latter, mm. kids, they, they're com- competition. Right. They're absolutely in competition, and, and that's the unfortunate side of this. What's too much? What 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 makes it over the top, though? What at one point does a does a camp have to say, "Listen, I know I'm competing for every dollar, but even I won't go that far." Um, you know, I I can't speak for for camp owner who's looking at the bottom line. Right. Um, I can say that if were my child going to off to a camp, I would be more interested in in their activities that allowed them to get out and be uh, exercising and, and being with uh, other kids and, and learning new sports or getting better at the sports that they wanted to get better at than, than whether or not they had a sushi bar. Uh, <laughs> I, I just, you know, as much as I like sushi, and I could probably eat as sushi, sushi three times a day every day. Right, me uh, too, yeah. Uh, I, I think that, you know, I would question how safe it is up in a summer camp to ha- be serving raw fish. Oh, that's a good point. I, I, you know what? That didn't even occur to me, but you're, you're 100% right. Anyway, Dr. Michael Solomon from the Adult Development Center in Hewlett, New York. You can reach him, 516-596-0073. You can also email them, info, <clears throat> excuse me, info at psychologicalhelp.org. He's available as is, as is his staff or his partners for multiple different counseling situations or opportunities. Dr. Solomon, thank you again for joining me today. Pleasure. Talk Anytime. to you soon. Take, Take care. care. Bye. You're listening to That's Life here on the Nachum Siegel Network, and I am excited to be joined also by my third and final guest for the day. Dr. Ephraim Kanafogel, the newly appointed university professor at Yeshiva University, joins me on the air right now. This is only the sixth time in the university's history that a professor has received this distinguished, distinguished honor. He is now the E. Bill Ivry University Professor of Jewish History, Literature, and Law. He also recently won the fifth Goldstein-Gorin Prize for the best book in Jewish thought from the International Center for Jewish Thought at Ben-Gurion University. Otherwise, Dr. Canafogel, I'm totally in my own league. Thanks for joining me. <laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs> you know, I, I, I was particularly excited to receive the press release this week as a Stern College graduate and a person who has was lucky enough, thank God, to sit in a number of your classes. I was very excited to see that you were re- receiving this recognition. Tell me about um, the, the magnitude 
of this title and how much it means to you. You're, you're a very accomplished academic. So how much does this mean to you in the scope of everything you've already accomplished? Well, uh, Miriam, this means an awful lot to me because, as you indicated, uh, I think there are only six currently. There may have been some in the past, but currently at Yeshiva, there are only six such designees. And in the academic world in general, the title university professor is considered to be very significant. Uh, the fact is, Baruch Hashem, uh, Yeshiva has always recognized my work over the years. Uh, I've been privileged to be at Stern for teaching for close to 35 years. I was about to say, don't say it out loud. Don't well, say it out well, loud. Well, since I'm only 13, it's fine. I know you are very uh, but, advanced. But in any case, I started when I was two. Uh, in any <laughs> case, um, uh, the fact is that, that uh, I've had a wonderful experience teaching and uh, through my scholarship here, and the fact is because Yeshiva University uh, considers its students and its faculty and its institution in such an important light, uh, there have been no shortage of promotions and honors and all the things <laughs> that go with success. But this is academic success, but this really is a kind of a, a very important moment for me in, in no small measure because I do think that I'm the first a uh, university professor at Yeshiva who has, as I like to call it, as the press release called it, born and bred. Yeah, uh, no joke, I came by the here way. as a high school freshman, and it's been a wonderful, uh, and really, you know, I can remember moments that were not perfect, but, but I forget them. It's been a, a wonderful <laughs> academic and personal experience, and to be able to sort of rise to the top in that nice sense in your own place is, is very special to me. I know. I think people would call you a lifer. <laughs> I think so, too. <laughs> uh, I like that they've been trying to get rid of me for years, but they haven't succeeded. Well, but it, 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 very interestingly, um, so the result has been, because of all the time that I've spent studying and teaching and learning and writing from Yeshiva, uh, for the last, oh, it's now, I think, more than 20 years, I, I, I've been allowed by Yeshiva to travel uh, for conferences and for research and, and you know, academically, and I'm, uh, I'm a great traveler, so, uh, you know, people People always say we can always find you at Yeshiva, but we often see you in Israel, Europe, <laughs> somewhere. Um, and and you know, uh, uh, my children are looking for me. But it's very, uh, <laughs> it, it's wonderful. So I think I think it's been when you're grounded in that way. Uh, people say you're you're a remarkable traveler. I say yeah, that's because I always know where I'm coming from, and I always know where I'm going. Where's um, the most Where's the most interesting place that you've spoken or that you've represented YU? Well, I had a I had a blast. I don't know how interesting this is. I had a blast at the Sorbonne uh, last year. That's not um, bad, Rabbi Kaderfogel. Uh, well, it's an interesting story. Uh, the fact is, that, you know, the Rabbon Shalom is running things here. I was in Shloshim for my father, as as it turned out. I had been invited. Uh, there was a woman at the, there was a woman at the Sorbonne, a graduate student who completed her doctorate. Um, uh, 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 in on a very esoteric uh, 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 series of manuscripts, Mahzor Vitri, School of Rashi, and all of that. Wow. And the Sabone asked me to come out. They said, you know something about this. And because I was trained at Yeshiva, uh, I told him, if I speak French to you, you will all collapse. But I read French very well, <laughs> and I understand French more than passably. So if you can live with me speaking in English, I can sit on this uh, jury, as they called it, and it was very interesting. They swore us in in a way that I could agree, and they actually, uh, in the middle, uh, rather than just sort of giving me my own time slot, and this went on for hours, as it does in the Sorbonne and right. many European universities, um, they uh, tried to sort of sneak me in to see if I was really following the conversation. Thankfully, I was, and as long <laughs> as I spoke English to them, it was fine, and it was interesting because here I was, 
was I, they, they put me, very interestingly, the Sorbonne said, well, we know you're a, an observant fellow. Right. We're going to put you in La Marais, in the, what I call the Parisian Borough Park. So I had a <laughs> shul 12 feet from the very lovely hotel in which I was staying. Wow. I went to Minion. I went to eat. Uh, I hope that Postkim aren't listening because I went to the Louvre where I hadn't been for years. Wow. What am I going to do? Is I, I spent time. I sat in the room and I worked on galleys of my latest book that just won the prize. Right. I went to the Sorbonne. I gave a lecture, which is what you're supposed to do. I did this dissertation, and I got back on the plane. They said, we're going to invite you back again. I said it was a wonderful time. And uh, that, to me, you know, carrying the yeshiva flag, right. I think still ranks as certainly one of the top top such experiences. That's unbelievable. That's really that is real. I mean, there are unique experiences that we've heard about on That's Life, but I would have to say that that is very much up there. Have they invited you back? Uh, they're working on it. There's a very, very distinguished professor there, uh, uh, Professor Schlanger Alzoe, who's an expert in manuscripts. And, uh, you know, I work with manuscripts, so she said, what you do, we don't have. So we're, wow. we're negotiating. Uh, uh, you know, one of the things that this university professorship does is it just makes it easier for me even, although, again, Yeshiva's always made it wonderfully felicitous, uh, these kind of things are now going to be even easier to do. Uh, look, I love my, my idea of fun is you fly out on a Motsai Shabbat, you go to Europe, uh, and you come back in time to teach a graduate course at the end of the week, or vice versa, so that no one misses more than a class or two during the semester. You're be, being a very good person, and you're getting, you're, you know, round, round, get around, I get around, and it's really wonderful. Uh, so so I'm, I'm, gl- I'm glad somebody thinks it's exciting. I can't wait for my children to hear this. They think nothing that I do is exciting. So, uh, well, don't no, worry, really my, kids, quite- my kids... My kids don't find what I do exciting either. Trust me. <laughs> no one does a good eye roll like a Wallach child. Uh, well, we, we'll, we'll have a contest. Anyway, very good. <laughs> Let's talk for a second about the book that was recently awarded the fifth Goldstein Gorin Prize for Best Book in Jewish Thought from the International Center for Jewish Thought at Ben-Gurion University. It is titled The Intellectual History and Rabbinic Culture of Medieval Ashkenaz. Now, let me ask you a question. Who... I mean, this is obviously a very, very important and and um, uh, important piece of academia, but in also in very important research. But how is a person like me going to um, inter going to interact with a text like this? Good question, and I'm I'm going to try to give a good answer. Uh, that's why God created text and footnotes. In other words, what I try to do in this book and in all of my books, and I think I'm perhaps more successful in some than in others, but I tell people not to let me know which. Um, basically, I tell a story, and the story of this book, um, you know, in the text, and not that you can't look at the footnotes, a person can do that too, but the story of this book is a, uh, you know, what for me is, uh, and I hope for other people interested in, in basic Jewish learning, we know that our greatest Talmudic commentators, Rashi people have some idea about, Tosfot people also have some idea about, these are scholars in northern France, in Germany in the 12th and 13th centuries, uh, Rashi's descendants, his students, others, and so on. The story here is a revisionist story, mm-hmm. uh, although in many ways it's a Yeshiva University story, I'll explain. I can't re- wait to hear that one. The, yeah. I'll tell you, the revisionism is that, you know, sort of the Welt, the world has always assumed that uh, Ashkenazic rabbinic figures, again, Rashi being sort of a tremendous exception, uh, you know, somebody who's able to write on all of Tanakh and just about all of Shas, uh, as I love to tell my students when they ask, how could he do this? I say simply because he wrote with both hands and both feet at the same time. But in any case, uh, once you get past Rashi, the Tosafists 
are Talmudists. They look for Yeshiva Bakram. They learn Gemara, and when they're finished, they learn more Gemara. Um, the truth is, if you look at excellent Litvish Yeshiva Bakram in the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, you'll find out that a lot of them are more interesting and more well-rounded, too, in that regard. And what I've shown here in this book, and what I argue from the get-go, is that there are all kinds of other interests. Now, I'm not talking about interests in sports, necessarily, okay. but interests in Torah commentary, interest in writing liturgical poetry, hmm. interest in matters of Jewish thought, interest in mysticism, and as I started to say before, amongst Chachmei Sfarad, the Sfaradim are thought of sort of more broadly, never mind Rambam and Ramban, who know all kinds of different disciplines, but Ibn Ezra, Yud HaLevi, Vahulu, Vahulu. So what I've argued here is a so, sort of a radical theory. Um, it's a Torah Umada principle. Bidiuk, and that's where you see you're, you're right on, on target, and that's where Yeshiva comes in. In other words, what I've shown, and I, I didn't I didn't make this up. Uh, this is where the manuscript work comes in. What I started to notice already a number of years ago is that quietly and clearly their Talmudics are their most important calling card. And that is the difference in some respects between Ashkenaz and Sfarad. Rabbi Levi is a great scholar. Ibn Ezra is a great rabbinic scholar. But they're not Rashi Yeshiva necessarily. They, we don't have Talmudic commentaries from them. In Ashkenaz, you start with that, but you very often branch out. And so Exactly as you suggest, the result is a kind of a Torah Umara story. It's the Talmudism plus other related disciplines. And I'll tell you one other YU piece of this. Uh, in an earlier book, uh, uh, Peering Through the Lattices, as I cutely called it, uh, on mysticism and magic in the Tosafist period, someone said to me, how did, you, how did you even think to go this way? And I said, the Rav. They said, what do you mean the Rav? <laughs> I said, I sat with the Rav and Shear for years, and in Shear we learned Gemara, Gemara, and Gemara. And, you know, the Rav's way, and we learned Gemara. The Rav didn't very rarely got off the daf and certainly didn't, didn't start schmoozing. He was all business for hours a day at a time. It was fantastic. And then you realize, but the Rav knows, never mind philosophy, the Rav knows the Zohar, the Rav, the things that you couldn't imagine that he knew, he knew. And the answer is that at that level, you are responsible for all of Jewish literature. And so wow. if you take somebody like Rashi's grandson, Rajbam, Rajbam is known very well for his Pshat Torah commentary, but Rajbam wore three hats at the same time, a Pshat Torah commentary, the nascent Tosafot, he and Rabbeinu Tam, he's one of the founders, and he fills in for Rashi in, for most of Baba Batra. So you have somebody thinking about very different disciplines okay. at the same time, and somehow it coheres. Wow. And so as I talk about in the beginning of the book, in the introductory chapter, is sort of the Ashkenazic theory of Torah truth. It's all possible. And something else I learned from the Rav, the Rav was very fond of saying, you won't die from a question. <laughs> the fact that you can't work out every single one of the pieces, right. don't get excited. The halacha, we know what to do. The basic uh, concepts, we know what we're supposed to be doing. I have a question that I haven't been able to resolve. You'll think about it some more in learning or in some other area. You'll think about it. You'll resolve it. Away we go. So can I go out on a limb and say that this book possibly touches on one of the earliest examples of modern orthodoxy, the way we think of it today? Well, with one, uh, you, you can go on the limb, and I think the limb will, will not sway too far. Okay. There's one very important difference, and this is true of the Litvish Yeshiva Bachram in the more modern period, too. The difference is there is not a 
uh, an institution or a curriculum of secular study standing behind it. Uh. In other words, this is a case of hafoch bava hafoch but the kulaba. Right? In other words, not that they didn't know what was going on in the world, they certainly did. But the framework in which they took this material in, the Sephardic world in the Middle Ages has more of a, of a yeshiva and an academy to it. Here, within the context of Torah study, uh, we'll say simply, chayavim ladat et If it's got Torah on it and it moves, you need to know it. So it is comprehensive. It's mastery of all facets of Torah on the one hand, including, again, areas that are not the same as Talmud study, that are not the same as halacha, that are not the same as traditional, you know, what we think about. Think the unthinkable in that uh, intellectual sense, but do it all within this framework. And because, I mean, what I'm arguing in effect is these Tosafists, and this is to their credit, not to their diminution, they were great intellectuals, which is not what you, you think about them as very smart people. They were Sakrani, they were intellectually curious, and they try to really go from discipline to discipline. Again, not all of them. This is not for everyone. But that's what I think is what emerges from this book. Are you including this, uh, this book in any of your courses coming up in the fall? So actually, uh, in my graduate course, I am going to, uh, I, I taught the course once before the book. I have a rule. I don't teach what I'm working on when I'm working on it too much. Okay. It sounds counterintuitive because I don't want to sway the students and I don't want to be swayed. Uh. I, I, but I try stuff out. So I tried this book out, as I say in the introduction to the book, it's a cute cute paragraph, I tried out ideas on the Stern Honor students, I tried out ideas on my graduate students in Revel, and I found, not surprisingly, the students had lots of things to say, right. they asked questions, I took those questions very seriously, they even suggested a few answers. Now that the book is done, I will take some of my uh, you know, senior graduate students through it, uh, under one condition, not only don't they have to buy the book, I'm not sure that I'm going to have them read the book. <laughs> until after we do it. In other words, ah, you don't want them to be swayed even afterwards. I, I, in other words, not not that I'm planning on writing a sequel tomorrow. In fact, the next book's on a completely well related but completely different subject. Um, but I like to troubleshoot these things, so I'm going to try to show them the argument through the texts and through the passages, and I may pull out you know some of the manuscript transcriptions, texts that you can't can't get anywhere else. I may pull them out for the book in the course packet, but I'm going to try to do this with them as a discovery, not as a what we would call a famachtazach, you know, it's not all done. The discussion is still ongoing. We'll see, but that's my intention. That's very interesting. You know, when you when I asked you yes, uh, yesterday or the day before about the different courses that you were teaching, I was very much hoping to see Jewish Christian polemics down there on the list because when I went to Stern, there was uh, first of all, to your credit, it was the first course that was always closed out because everyone wanted to be in it. And I will tell you that I couldn't. I, I was. Could not have been more excited when I finally got into that class. So I know that it's been retired a little bit. Uh, a, a little bit, but I still teach it. I still teach it. In fact, oh. I've, I've, the story of that course is as follows. The real expert at Yeshiva University in Jewish Christian Polemics is, of course, our dean at Revel, one of my teachers, uh, Professor David Berger. When I was a graduate student and then when I was a beginning faculty member, he didn't stop teaching it either, but he sort of yarshened an undergraduate version to me. In other words, I said to him, can I teach it? He said, sure, being a wonderful 
wonderful uh, Dr. Vater, a wonderful master in this regard. Nice. So I, t- I taught it. I gave it my own sort of stamp. Uh, I actually sort of have one of our one of our Tanakh faculty, Naomi Grunhaus, who just published a book on Radak. You can have her on next. <laughs> Naomi Grunhaus, we've got to get our, our uh, she's an associate professor. She has tenure. She's not so junior. Um, she teaches a version of this from the biblical study side. I still teach my version. But this is how we do it in academia. We, we and, and it is a very exciting course, and I enjoy oh. teaching, and I still teach it every couple of years because it, it you know, thank God, I, I never had attendance problems in my courses, but that course always packs the house then and now, and it's a very important course. It is. Obviously, uh, even though the context is fundamentally medieval, it's for obvious reasons a very important course, and I, uh, look, you know, considering I'm, I'm only 21, I still enjoy <laughs> teaching, you know, so I, not... I like to get out there, and, uh, you know, I have my graduate students with whom I can, you know, be as difficult as ever, and I have my, my lectures in which I can, uh, you know, have some fun, so I have fun in all cases. So. I'm not joking when I, when I say that I think that actually should be a core requirement for every student because I don't think that I think that it provides a basic level of understanding that anyone who's going out into the modern world and is staying true to their orthodoxy who is going to be faced with numerous questions complications situations really needs a foundation and and that's what besides the constant energy and excitement that was in the classroom who anyone who is listening to this interview can feel just through just by listening that, that there was that exact energy radiates through not only that course that I took with you, but all the other courses that I took as well. But I think that that one, that one's got to come back with a vengeance. That's got to okay, be okay. I, I hear you. That's, yeah. that's uh, listen. You know, I, I obviously I, I you know must be able to teach somewhat, or <laughs> they would have done what they've done here at Yeshiva. Right. But the fact is, uh, you 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 like to hear what students think, and we have feedback in general. But I take the feedback very seriously, and I, I hear exactly what you say. Very good. Yeah. Well, I'm coming back to audit that class, even. Though though I know all the answers because I want to hear them again. Anyway, Rabbi Canterfogel, Rabbi Dr. Canterfogel, I should say, from Yeshiva University, university professor, Mazal Tov on your new honor, and thank you for joining us here on That's Life. I hope you'll come back. Thank you. I would certainly like to, and you're welcome. You're an alumna. You're, you're welcome to visit us at any time. Yay! Terrific. <laughs> I'm in. Take care. Thank you. Bye. You're listening to That's Life here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm Mary Mel Wallach, and let's go through today's programming because, as you know, the stunt show's coming up at 8, but we have everything coming up beforehand. I don't want you to miss a bit right after this randy hosts something to talk about followed by an encore presentation of teen spirit and the ou with jewish with the ou's the jewish reaction hosted by ellie hagler that comes up at five o'clock spin class with michael fragan mazal tov to michael he retained his seat in the as a lawrence trustee that was in the election this week thursday night extravaganza with nachem and then bump it up if i had a drum roll i would insert it here our stunt show, hosted by Daniel Gordon from the Center for Kosher Culinary Arts in Flatbush. It is our first network cook-off sponsored by our friends at Manischewitz. Listen to it or watch it. Both you can do on our website, nachamsegel.com. That's at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Book of Life with Charlie Arari comes up at 9. Encore of Teen Spirit and then Charlie, Charlie Burnhout at 10 p.m. By the way, mazal tov to Charlie on his honor this Sunday. Join Nachum tomorrow morning from 6 to 9 as he hosts JM in the AM here on the stream and on 91.1, 90.9, and 91.9 FM, followed by Table for Two with Naomi Nachman. Don't miss it. Tomorrow, Naomi has a big announcement. And guess what? Here's a here's a teaser. It has something to do with food. But bump Don't miss Saturday Night Seagull, hosted by our one and only Avrami Finkelstein, live here on the stream, 10 p.m. Matzei Shabbos, NachumSiegel.com. Check out all our programming on the website, NachumSiegel.com. This show will be rebroadcast Sunday at 1 p.m., and here, another major announcement for those of you who are living under a rock. Mazal Tov 
to my intern, Yael Lassen. She is a Kala. She's engaged to Ariel Fromowitz of Woodmere, New York. We are very excited for them. And in honor of that engagement, I'm going to the back wall with a little Miami Boys Choir from when I was a kid. I hope Randy hears this right before she goes, don't do that, Avrami. I saw that. He just made it sound like, oh, my gosh, back wall. Um, what's it called? Randy's got to hear this because this is when Randy and I were kids in Morisha. That's how old this song is. But I hear the first couple of notes, and I love this song. Anyway, Mazal Tov to the Hassan and Kala. That's life, everybody. Bye, guys.